Ой, что это что он спирачит? Ты шел. А по часть того, что он спирачит, торец. Уит я урос, Адам той добром. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of Conspiracy the Show. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. What makes this a special episode? Two things. For one, I'm by myself. It's a solo episode. There's no one here but me and you. Who? Us. Only we can hear us scream right now. It's probably a weird way to put it. But yeah, this is a solo episode. One of my co-hosts will be back next week. I'm assuming, unless this just goes really fucking well, and somehow I'm able to just do one solo podcast a week and make a living at that, then everyone can fend for themselves. But the other thing that makes this a very special episode is it's the first in what I hope will be a series of solo episodes that I'm calling Banned Media Reports. I've described what I do in the past as just getting paid to do book reports. And that's mostly accurate, but sometimes not just books. Sometimes it's documentaries and movies and FBI.vault.gov archives, or maybe it's vault.fbi.gov. One of the two. Check it out sometime. My favorite website on the internet. Enter your favorite celebrity's name today. The results will shock you. Anyway, one thing I come across pretty regularly while researching episodes of this podcast is that a lot of times there will be a, usually a book, but sometimes just a video that not only provides the basis for the conspiracy theory that I'm researching, but also for some reason is mysteriously hard to find. And on these episodes, I'll be tracking down those sources and telling you what they're all about, what's in them. One example, we did an episode recently about a documentary called The Origins of AIDS. The reason the episode was based on that documentary is because the book the theory is based on is basically only available to the elites at this point. It's called The River a journey to the source of HIV and AIDS. It's written by a guy named Edward Hooper on Amazon right now. The cheapest copy is $75 and that's for a paperback copy in acceptable condition elsewhere. The cheapest copy is closer to $130. So it's like a goddamn textbook. So of course I bought a copy and I'll be doing an episode about it soon. I do need time to read it. And if you paid close attention to that entire last few sentences there, it might seem like I'm implying that by buying a copy of this book, I am somehow myself an elite. And I just want to make it clear that yes, that is absolutely what I'm saying. Write it down. Anyway, this week, I'm not talking about a book. I'm talking about a movie, a movie that I have wanted to see for two years now. Ever since trailers for it started appearing in theaters back in May of 2018, that movie is called City of Lies. It's a 2018 film starring Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker, and it's about LAPD involvement 
in the murder of rapper Notorious B.I.G. Real name, Christopher Wallace. Sidebar, if you're one of those people who only listens to Conspiracy the Show and not any of my other podcasts, first of all, you better not be fucking listening to other podcasts by other people. It better just be mine. But also, I do host a bunch of other podcasts. One of them is called The 90s Sucked. And for the past two episodes, we have been covering the LAPD's notorious Rampart scandal and the murder of Notorious Big. And it probably won't surprise you at all to know that my conspiracy theorist heart follows me to that podcast also. So maybe check it out if you want more information about what's covered in the movie City of Lies. But back to the movie. It's based on the 2002 book Labyrinth, and it's based on the files of former LAPD detective Russell Poole, who was the lead detective on the notorious B.I.G. murder case. Produced and distributed by Global Road Entertainment, at least it was supposed to be, it was set to premiere in the United States on September 7th, 2018. Like I said, trailers for it in theaters and everything. Then, about a month before the release date, the movie was indefinitely pulled from the schedule. The reason given at the time was Johnny Depp's on-set behavior, specifically an incident in which it's alleged that he punched the film's location manager after a dispute over when they could and could not film. And right off the bat, does that sound right? This movie was shot between December 2016 and May 2017, meaning this incident would have happened sometime between then. A full year later, in May 2018, the trailer starts showing in theaters. Then, out of the blue, with one month to go before the premiere, it's pulled because of a lawsuit over an on-set fight. Man, the Twilight Zone movie still came out and three people died died while filming that the scene where those people were killed is in the movie granted that was a different time so how about some more recent examples in 2015 mia jovovich's stunt double a woman named olivia jackson filed a lawsuit after she lost an arm and was in a coma for 17 days as a result of an onset injury that suit was settled in 2020. Guess what happened between that injury and that lawsuit being settled? The Resident Evil movie she was working on was released. Another example, the 2018 horror movie Incident in a Ghostland. On the set of that film, actress Taylor Hickson suffered a disfiguring facial injury after she crashed through a glass door during filming. She filed a lawsuit. That movie still came out. So if the makers of fucking Incident in a Ghostland can overcome a lawsuit to put their movie out, I'm pretty confident the people behind a big budget film starring Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker could probably do the same thing if they really wanted to. Also, the website The Daily Beast interviewed several people who were on set during the making of City of Lies for an article called Inside the Shocking Death of Johnny Depp's biggie murder movie, City of Lies. It's written by a guy named Justin Rorlick. We'll link to it on the website. Here's a quote from one of the people that they interview who was on the set when this incident happened. They had a little moment 
There weren't punches. There wasn't anything. Just we're in each other's faces for a second. We shot for maybe another hour and a half after that. We went inside. We finished, and the locations guy came up to Johnny, and they hugged, and it was all cute, and that was it. That's a quote from script supervisor Emma Danoff, who was sitting next to Johnny Depp when that alleged incident happened. They interviewed three other crew members who all backed up her version of events. City of Lies director Brad Furman didn't learn the movie was pulled until August during a conference call with producers, even though industry data shows it was shelved as early as July 19th. Randall Sullivan, who co-wrote the book the movie is based on, said he was immediately suspicious on account of how hard Global Road was selling him on the reason why this movie had to be pulled. This is a quote from him, also from that Daily Beast article. She was trying so hard to sell the narrative that this was all about the bad publicity for Johnny. And when someone's trying too hard to sell, it comes through. I thought, you know, why is she trying so hard to convince me? If that's true, then she could have just told me matter-of-factly. But she's going on and on about all the research they've done, and that has made me start thinking, is there something else to it? The movie is directed by a guy named Brad Furman. And when making this movie, he became one of very, very few people, law enforcement included, who've actually seen the complete unredacted case files from the investigation and the federal probe into the LAPD Rampart Division and the murder of Christopher Wallace. And some of that non-public information does make its way into this movie, which... If you're looking for a reason why it might have been pulled, there you go. Even at the outset of filming, Furman started receiving veiled threats and suggestions that he shouldn't make the movie. Perry Sanders, who is a lawyer for Valletta Wallace, Christopher Wallace's mom, told Furman that making the movie could be a risk. A friend with ties to the L.A. underworld told him not to make the movie. And a cop friend who he hadn't spoken to in 15 years, contacted him out of the blue and told him not to make the movie. That same cop friend also told him to cover the camera on his computer so no one could hijack his laptop and figure out a way to frame him. The Daily Beast also talked to an FBI agent for their article. He said this, As bad as the crime was in the Biggie murder and all the other corruption, the cover-up far exceeds, I think, what the crime was. I think when this movie comes out, there's going to be a lot of people scrambling and running for the hills because they're not going to want to have to answer some questions about the corruption that was going on at the LAPD. And he also told them that the main concern, which I think is pretty obvious, would be that if this movie were to come out, it could revive the civil lawsuit that Valletta Wallace filed against the LAPD, which... As is mentioned in the movie, Christopher Wallace, his future earnings potential was through the roof, like billions of dollars probably. So if you're talking financial damages in terms of what was taken from Valletta Wallace, it's going to be a lot of money. And it's a lawsuit that the LAPD might not survive. Or as that same FBI agent in this article puts it, the lawsuit would absolutely completely bury and ruin the LAPD and more importantly would shut down all the different task forces 
that the LAPD had with the FBI, as well as other federal agencies from which they get all that federal grant money. Not to overstate it, it would basically shut down the LAPD. They could not afford to take that hit. As I've probably mentioned on this podcast before, definitely on other podcasts, this is the third attempt to make this movie. Sylvester Stallone was the first person attached to it. I'll link to articles from back in 2003 when it was announced that he was going to be making this movie. It was supposed to be an HBO movie. He was going to play Russell Poole. By 2006, he was quoted as saying this about the project. The story was like a modern-day noir written from the point of view of Detective Poole, who basically was railroaded out of the police department because the more he investigated, the dirtier the high rollers in city hall and police commissions and DA offices all appeared to be part of a conspiracy to squash this case. I don't think it'll ever be done because of the amount of lawsuits that would be filed. It's also well known that Leonardo DiCaprio was lined up to play Russell Poole in a version of this movie that was being produced by fucking DreamWorks, the official movie studio of the Illuminati. Here's what Randall Sullivan says in that same Daily Beast article about that. The Los Angeles Police Department is the most politicized police department in the country, and its relationships with financial powers and political powers in the city and in the state, and even in the country, are, I think, unprecedented. I saw the way they were able to marshal resources to oppose making this movie. There may have been other things. I don't think it was based mainly or entirely on political pressure, but DreamWorks was clearly scared by the things they were getting told. They were getting scared off this project. I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but Randall Sullivan is the guy who wrote Labyrinth, which is the book based on Russell Poole's investigation. Or maybe I did mention it, and I just gave myself something new to edit out. Either way, I know what you're probably thinking. But Adam, there's a whole USA Network television series based on the murders of Notorious Big and Tupac, and it's based on Russell Poole's investigation. Sure, but a few things about that. For one, it's not based on Russell Poole's investigation. It references Russell Poole's investigation, but it's based on LAPD detective Greg Kading's investigation, and conveniently, his version of events implicates the LAPD way, way less. Also, if you watch that USA series, his version of events are centered around what very much in the series looks like a coerced confession. It also, again, conveniently, came out after Russell Poole died. So he wasn't around to protest or dispute the show's version of events, which kind of paint him as a crazy person who was just wrong. So, yeah, there's a TV show out there about it, and I don't trust it one fucking bit. Just the fact that it got made when all of these other attempts to tell a very similar story all got mysteriously shut down. That alone makes me suspicious. All that said... The movie City of Lies did manage to make its way out into the world. On January 10th, 2019, the film premiered out of competition as the closing film of the Noir in Festival in Italy, which just means it wasn't part of the film festival, like there was no judging. 
I guess. No, it wasn't eligible for awards. It's just the movie they chose to close that festival out with. It was also released on Blu-ray in Italy on June 19th, 2019. So with this being 2020 and all, that means this movie can be found if you want it bad enough. How did I get it? Obviously, I purchased a legal copy from Italy along with a compatible Blu-ray player that would allow me to watch it here in the United States. And then I immediately set both of those things on fire because I don't want that kind of heat on me. I don't want to be in possession of such an inflammatory piece of work. So I disposed of it right away. Prove I didn't, bitch. I bought it with Bitcoin. But also there's torrents all over the internet and you could probably just download it that way. None of that matters. What really matters is I've seen this film and I'm going to tell you about it. I don't think we need to worry too much about spoilers. You know the general way it ends. Two young men in the prime of their respective lives are murdered and no one is ever held accountable for it. I guess the most important question should be addressed right up front. Is City of Lies a good movie? Yeah, it's fucking great. And it probably would have killed at the box office. Johnny Depp is great in it. Forrest Whitaker is great in it. Purely from an entertainment standpoint, I recommend watching this movie. It's a good movie. Of all the movies made about Notorious Big and Tupac, City of Lies is the best of those movies. It opens with a depiction of a really famous incident, a road rage incident between two off-duty LAPD cops, Frank Liga and Kevin Gaines. Liga shot and killed Gaines. Neither of the two men knew the other was a cop. Liga was white. Gaines was black. So this happened hot on the heels of the Rodney King verdict and the subsequent L.A. riots. So this incident was well on its way to being labeled as a racist cop killing a black man for racism reasons. And Russell Poole was the lead detective assigned to that case. This incident in real life absolutely happened. And it's what eventually brings the LAPD's infamous Rampart scandal to light. And if you're unfamiliar, again, we just did an episode of the 90s, sucked about it. But that was a massive police corruption scandal in which LAPD officer Rafael Perez, who'd recently been implicated in stealing cocaine from the LAPD evidence room and selling it on the street, testified against as many as 70 of his fellow cops for crimes ranging anywhere from unjustified shootings to drinking on the job. It cost the city of L.A. millions of dollars in settlements, led to a five-year period where the Department of Justice oversaw police reforms within the LAPD. And this movie makes a really shocking claim about that scandal. And I think that might be the key to why this movie got shut down. But we'll get to that. So after the road rage incident in the opening, the movie turns to Forrest Whitaker's character, who is a journalist just named Jackson who shows up at Russell Poole's apartment hoping to get information about the case. They team up. And I think Jackson is actually meant to represent another theory and another investigation into Notorious B.I.G., which was by Chuck Phillips. It appeared in the L.A. Times, I think, in 2003. And his claim was that the Notorious B.I.G., Christopher Wallace, actually paid for the hit 
on Tupac and that he was killed out of revenge over that. And that theory that Notorious Big went to Las Vegas and paid for Tupac to be killed has actually been pretty heavily discredited. And in this movie, it's Forrest Whitaker's character who represents that theory instead, as opposed to it being Chuck Phillips. I think it's the movie taking some creative liberties to get all of the pertinent details in without making it a six-hour Netflix series, which it will probably be someday. And then they give us a brief rundown of the events of Christopher Wallace's murder. One of two times they do that in the movie. Is everyone familiar with how that murder happened? Because it's a really complex murder for something that history has tried to write off as a simple gang shooting. Just another drive-by. Here's how it happened, basically. Christopher Wallace and Sean Combs are leaving the Peterson Auto Museum in Los Angeles. They were at a Soul Train Awards after party, and they're in separate cars. The car that's carrying Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, is in front. Christopher Wallace's car is behind him. A security detail for Bad Boy Records is behind Christopher Wallace's car. Sean Combs blows through a yellow light for security reasons. Like, any security person is going to tell you that it's better to be moving than stopped in a situation where you're concerned about your security. So they blow through this yellow light. Christopher Wallace's car stops at the red light. He's got his security detail behind him. At that point, a white Toyota Land Cruiser makes a U-turn and tries to wedge itself in between his security detail and Notorious Big's car. At that moment, a black Chevy Impala SS comes driving up the street really fast, pulls into the right lane next to Notorious Big's car, empties the clip from a handgun into that car, killing Notorious Big instantly. That car speeds off into the night, never to be seen or heard from again. At that point, that white SUV backs out of traffic and gets the fuck out of there also. That is a hit. That's a fucking execution. And it clearly took some coordination. You had to be in the right place at the right time to pull that off. And that's why Russell Poole always suspected that it was more than just a drive-by shooting. It was an assassination. So anyway, back to the movie. Poole shows up at the Kevin Gaines shooting scene. Great quote. In 1997, everybody thought the LAPD was filled with only one thing, racist cops. But it wasn't. It also had politicians. <laughs> That's a reference to the Gaines shooting and the idea that in the wake of Rodney King, the LAPD was really determined to paint that road rage incident as a rogue racist cop killing a black man. And that all happened. But in the course of his investigation, Russell Poole not only finds video evidence that exonerates Frank Liga, but also finds evidence that Kevin Gaines was working for Suge Knight and Death Row Records. Weird. He also, this is in the movie, meets a Jamaican bodyguard for Death Row, who later reveals himself to be not only not Jamaican, man, but he's actually an FBI special agent who's managed to infiltrate Death Row Records. Everyone knows about Death Row Records, right? Suge Knight owned it. Huge rap label. 
in the early to mid 90s. Dr. Dre's Chronic album came out on Death Row. The first Snoop Dogg album was a Death Row album. And Suge Knight is a real character. He has come up on this podcast a few times. I believe specifically we've talked about the FBI files that are available on that same website I mentioned earlier, vault.fbi.gov. Go there and type in Tupac Shakur sometime. Pay special attention to the part about him being targeted in an extortion scheme near the end of his life. It's redacted, but give it a good read. I think you'll figure out the name of the person who was complicit in targeting him in that. Anyway, Death Row Records was a record label that was suspected of also being a criminal organization. The owner of Death Row Records, Suge Knight, was a member of the Bloods. And what Russell Poole uncovers while investigating the Kevin Gaines incident is that Kevin Gaines was working for Death Row Records as a security guard in his off time when he wasn't protecting and serving. And what is explained in this meeting with this FBI agent who had infiltrated Death Row in the movie is that Suge Knight and Death Row Records have the LAPD in their pocket. And we know that to be true. There were at least six LAPD officers who worked as security guards for Death Row Records in their off time. And most of them did not report that they were working for Death Row Records, which is a crime. You have to report what you're doing in your off-duty as a cop so as to avoid conflict of interest in things. I don't know if it's a crime, but cops are supposed to do it. And this FBI agent also says that he's heard rumors that Suge and Death Row were involved in the murder of Notorious Big. So Poole manages somehow to get promoted to LAPD Robbery Homicide Division, which did happen in real life. And his first assignment is the murder of Notorious Big. And the first person he's put in contact with is a gangster named Psycho Mike, who is a real-life figure from this case. He says that Suge Knight also has said that Death Row was involved in the murder of Notorious Big and that the hit was orchestrated by a guy named D-Mac. He also describes the shooter and gives them a name. Amir Muhammad. Amir Muhammad is a really important name in this case. There are two different composite sketches of Biggie's shooter, and they both look like the man who was later identified as Amir Muhammad. But we'll get there. First, there's a really fun moment in the movie where Jackson is demanding to run with the name of the shooter, Amir Muhammad, and Poole tells him not to. And when Jackson says he's going forward anyway, Poole says, no, 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 no. If you want a name, I'll give you the real name. And the name he gives him, Stanley Kirk Burrell. Everyone know who that is? It's MC Hammer. And Forrest Whitaker takes this back to his newsroom and starts gloating about scooping the name of Christopher Wallace's shooter. And it turns out it's just MC Hammer. So how crazy is it that MC Hammer killed Notorious Big? What if that's where this movie was going this whole time? That would be amazing. But no, it was just, just a little hijinks, just a little joke Russell Poole pulled on him. I don't know if that happened in real life, but it seems too specific to not have happened, right? I don't know. So then there's a scene where Russell Poole walks Jackson through the time he almost convinced his partner in robbery homicide that 
the LAPD being involved in this murder might be a thing worth pursuing. And he says he had him convinced for one night, and then the guy made a trip to New York, came back, and said, no, your story's not right. We should just focus on gang members instead. And what they end up finding is both police and gang members all in one person. There's a bank robbery that is depicted in the movie that also happened in real life. And the person who is eventually arrested for carrying out that bank robbery in conjunction with his girlfriend who worked at the bank as a manager is a guy named David Mack, the D Mack named by Psycho Mike a few scenes earlier. Psycho Mike also being a real person involved in this case. And it turns out D Mack is David Mack, an LAPD officer who, in his spare time, does security work for Death Row Records. Also, a member of the Bloods, just like Kevin Gaines. So they arrest David Mack, and in his garage, Russell Poole finds a shrine to Tupac, a black Chevy Impala SS that looks just like the car Biggie Shooter was driving, and a bunch of walkie-talkies that Poole suspected were used by the conspirators to communicate on the night of Christopher Wallace's killing. Nevertheless, the LAPD refuses to let Russell Poole test that Impala for gunshot residue. And why would that be if not just to avoid the impending lawsuit that would result from an investigation of that nature? Notorious Big, again, was 24 years old. Future earning potentials were incalculable, almost. A civil lawsuit of that nature would break the LAPD. And this is one of the really interesting moments in the movie because one of the holes in this theory has always been that no one ever identified David Mack or any of the other death row affiliated cops at the scene of Biggie's murder. I think that's even mentioned in the USA Network series. But Russell Poole always contended that because they were so intent on covering up officer involvement in the murder, the LAPD refused to let the full details of his investigation be made public. He even filed a lawsuit over it at one point. Well, in this movie, which is based on those unredacted files, he does indeed talk to a witness who identifies David Mack as having been present that night. Not only does he say Mack was present, he says Mack was using a walkie-talkie. And hey, maybe that's all circumstantial evidence, but people get convicted over circumstantial evidence all the time. If you believe Scott Peterson killed his wife, you can find it in your heart to believe the LAPD was involved in the murder of Christopher Wallace. Have you ever looked into the Peterson case? There's zero actual evidence he killed his wife. Just evidence that he went fishing the day she went missing. And then, after like a month of the media drilling that detail into people's heads, Lacey Peterson's body is found in the water, and that's it. That's the evidence. And that dude is never getting out of prison. In this case, they found a shrine to Tupac, bullets that match the kind used to kill Notorious Big, walkie-talkies, and a car that's identical to the car the shooter was driving, all in the garage of a corrupt cop who worked for Notorious Big's biggest rival. In any other case, that person at least gets arrested and or asked a few questions. But none of that ever happened. 
Another detail in the movie that I don't think has been public knowledge up to this point is that Poole, at one point, gets a copy of the official LAPD report about the murder of a crip named Kelly Jameson. Kelly Jameson was jumped by a group of bloods at a death row after party and subsequently beaten to death. But in the report they receive about the incident through a Freedom of Information Act request, all of the details of that incident are redacted, even Kelly Jameson's name. And why? Because, as it turns out, the three death row security guards who watched the incident happen were off-duty LAPD officers. So if that were to get out, down the rabbit hole we go. If nothing else, it's solid evidence that the LAPD very much wanted to cover up their officers' involvement with death row records. Also, side note, just because I have it at this point in my notes, the music in this movie is great. It's not just that they were able to license Notorious Big's actual music, but there are some really cool remixes. If nothing else, the soundtrack deserves to be out. Anyway, the movie also mentions a thing that is confirmed to have happened that I think is the smoking gun in the LAPD's involvement in the murder of Christopher Wallace. The entire time David Mack was in prison for that bank robbery, which he was very cocky about, by the way, because he's he's out of prison by now. Like, he was sentenced to, I think, 15 years. Good behavior got out in, like, eight. Money was never recovered. The entire time David Mack was in prison, he got one visitor. That visitor was Amir Muhammad, the man who was named by at least one source as the shooter in Christopher Wallace's death. That's pretty weird, right? Something that's not mentioned in the movie, but for sure has been mentioned in real life, is that at one point someone claimed Rafael Perez said in jail that the robbery was carried out to pay Amir Muhammad the other half of the money he was owed for the shooting. He didn't get all of the money he was owed because he was supposed to kill Puff Daddy too. But that opportunity passed when the car Puffy was riding in blew through that red light. Anyway, at this point, the movie has to take some creative liberties when covering the Rampart scandal. And I assume that's because Rampart could be an entire movie of its own. It is already a TV show of its own. The Shield, starring Michael Chiklis. You ever seen it? It's based on the Rampart scandal. Also, Denzel Washington's character in Training Day is based on the central figure in the Rampart scandal, who is the aforementioned LAPD officer, Rafael Perez. The events leading up to the Rampart scandal are way more detailed and drawn out than depicted in this movie, but they get the important part right, which is, as mentioned earlier, that it ended with Perez, who was also a blood who worked security for Death Row Records, implicating at least 70 LAPD officers in all sorts of crimes. The way Perez's eventual arrest is depicted in the film isn't what actually happened. What it is, though, is a composite of all the crimes Perez is known to have committed, including shooting an innocent man and then planning a gun on him to make it seem like he was attacked, uh, stealing cocaine and then reselling it on the street. But in the movie, it's made to seem that what happens after his arrest is that Perez immediately agrees to implicate these other cops. And no, what happened is he went on trial 
for stealing cocaine from the LAPD evidence room. That ended in a hung jury and a mistrial. And while the prosecution was looking for more evidence to build a case for a second trial, they found 11 more instances of him stealing cocaine. So to avoid that second trial, he agrees to talk. And here's where the movie makes a really huge claim. What it implies is that the Rampart scandal wasn't the LAPD finally coming clean about all of their wrongdoing. The Rampart scandal was a diversion that allowed them to take the bullet for a bunch of smaller crimes, but avoid the disastrous consequences that would have resulted from the murder of Christopher Wallace being tied to the LAPD. That's a huge claim, and it's one that I haven't seen mentioned in any of the subsequent articles or coverage of this theory. Another revelation from the movie, at one point, Russell Poole was going to testify on behalf of the defense in a civil suit the family of Kevin Gaines had filed against Frank Liga. The point was to get his allegations of LAPD involvement in the death of Christopher Wallace on the public record. Liga and his lawyer both were on board, but then the chief of police shows up at the courthouse, a meeting of some sort happens, and the case ends up being settled without Liga's knowledge and without anyone ever being allowed to testify. And that case was definitely settled. Kevin Gaines' family, I believe, got $250,000 from the LAPD. So there's that. And that is what this movie is about at its core. Not just the murder of Christopher Wallace, but more so and more importantly about how every attempt at completely and fully investigating the LAPD's involvement in that murder is shut down every time. So basically it's a movie about what happened to this movie. How fucking meta is that? The movie also reveals another interesting detail at the end at one point after Russell Poole was pushed out of the LAPD and told his theory about David Mack was false the LAPD reopened the investigation to avoid a civil suit and did it by issuing a search warrant for David Mack's Impala in other words the same lead Russell Poole brought them in the first place is what they used to justify that search warrant So how invalid could the theory really be if that search warrant was issued? Nothing ever came of that search warrant, probably because that wasn't really the point. Issuing that search warrant meant they were still investigating and investigating a fellow cop, no less. But also because it was an open investigation, the civil suit filed by Valletta Wallace couldn't go forward. Unfortunately, Russell Poole died before he could do anything with that search warrant information. And if I recall correctly, never mentioned in that USA Network series. Imagine that. And unfortunately, the movie ends as this story ends in real life with no resolution. The murder of Christopher Wallace has never been solved. The murder of Tupac Shakur remains unsolved despite so many people witnessing those murders with their own eyes. But yeah, City of Lies is a great fucking movie. If you are able to find it, I would recommend giving it a watch. Be wary about doing what I did and buying a a legitimate copy of it on Blu-ray and a whole other Blu-ray player to watch it with. You're going to have some outlet concerns. 
There's going to have to be some adapters involved there. You might have to rewire your house. And then all the text on the screen, it's in Italian. How am I supposed to know what Maggio 1997 means? What am I, Rosetta Stone? But beyond that, really good movie. Highly recommended. Just don't ask me for a copy. I will not give it to you. I don't have it anymore. Like I said, set it on fire. Anyway, that is the episode. Like I said, I'll be doing more episodes like this in the future. Most of them will probably be bonus episodes, but this one's free. As far as things to plug, conspiracy.supercast.tech. You can subscribe to just this podcast and bonus episodes all ad-free for just $3 a month or unpopsnetwork.supercast.tech. You can subscribe to the entire network through the end of the month for just $5. Then it goes up the end of that month. Also, go to anchor.fm slash conspiracy the show and you can leave us a voicemail. I don't know if I'll include it on the show, but I might as long as you're not a jerk about it. Follow this show on Twitter at Conspirapops. And I think that's it. Let's get out of here. Goodbye, everybody. I love you. <laughs>